You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at The Post. Today is World Refugee Day. There are over 100 million people in the world who are displaced by violence and persecution. And I'm joined today by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi who's gonna talk with me about this problem. Mr. High Commissioner, thank you for joining Washington Post Live again. Thank you very much. So, uh, Mr. High Commissioner, your office last week issued a detailed report on the refugee problem, noting that more than 100 million people are displaced and that that number had grown by 10 million people in the last year, thanks in part to the war in Ukraine. I want to begin by asking you, why is this number growing so fast and how should the world begin to start thinking about how to deal with it? It's a big question and it's a big problem. I I think the fundamental cause when we speak about refugees, forcibly displaced people, is that, as you know very well, conflicts multiply literally accumulate themselves one on top of the other and very few if at all get resolved if you don't solve the root causes of a crisis especially a man-made crisis like a war like um, violations of human rights discrimination and violence of different uh, kinds uh, people will not go back people first of all will seek refuge in safer places sometimes in their own countries We call those internally displaced people, sometimes across borders, those are the refugees, but they won't go back. Um, And this is fundamentally why this figure that you mentioned has been growing every year for the past 10 years. I noted in looking at your report, Mr. High Commissioner, that the number has doubled in the last decade Uh, It's an awful thought, which is that the number might be even higher if it wasn't for the COVID crisis, which has kept borders closed and perhaps has reduced the flow of refugees. What about that? Could this number be even higher than the 100 million figure that I mentioned? It could be in, in some cases where borders remained closed. But, you know, there have been many instances in Africa, for example, where I am right now, where in spite of COVID, states kept their borders open because they didn't want to shut out people fleeing from war. I can give you several examples, but one that comes to mind is that of Uganda, for instance. Uganda um, never closed the door to people fleeing from Eastern Congo, one of the most beleaguered places on earth from the point of view of conflict. So uh, the figure has unfortunately continued to grow. And I'm afraid that with Ukraine uh, continuing to be a a very violent conflict and displacing so many people, and with uh, many other places being uh, affected by conflict, this figure is going to continue to grow. Mr. High Commissioner, you mentioned that you're in Africa, uh, and I understand uh, from your team that you're in the Ivory Coast, 
uh, on World Refugee Day. Uh, and I'd be, I'd be interested in, in hearing what you're seeing uh, in Ivory Coast. I gather that's one of the rare success stories in terms of repatriation of refugees. Tell us about what you're seeing and hearing there. Yes, precisely. I made this decision a few months ago. Um, the, the president of Ivory Coast of Côte d'Ivoire, President Ouattara, a few years back told me that he thought that conditions in his country were conducive for the peaceful, stable, sustainable return of more than 350,000 refugees that had left many years back because, again, once again, of internal conflict, very vicious internal conflict that prevailed here uh, at that time. So we started working on that and uh, uh, we've managed together with governments in the region and of course the government of Ivory Coast of Côte d'Ivoire to repatriate more than 90% of those that were refugees in the region. And last year we did something that we rarely do. We uh, invoked a, a legal uh, a legal clause that is called cessation clause. So we recommended to countries in the region to declare, as of now, next week, end of June, what we call the cessation clause for Ivorian refugees. After that date, these countries have agreed, those people still remaining, there's not many, but still remaining, will not be considered refugees anymore. Now, they will be protected in other ways. They will be able to stay where they are. So there's a whole construction around it, which is very safe for people. But what is very interesting, it's a symbol that it's possible, that that growth of the 100 million figure is not inevitable. And that's why I decided to celebrate World Refugee Day here today, speaking about this positive situation, rare as it may be. That's fascinating. And I assume that you think that similar efforts uh, could be undertaken in other countries uh, beyond Ivory Coast, perhaps with a similar cessation clause mechanism. Am I right? Sure. But remember, the cessation clause comes after other efforts are made. We could not have declared this clause without the government of Côte d'Ivoire not doing what it has done in terms of political stability, efforts towards reconciliation. There was a very harsh political conflict here years ago. That's what caused the refugees to flee. Without appropriate investment in the economy, in the wealth of the nation that has really provided more prosperity here than in many other countries in the region. All of this is the foundation on which you can build the cessation clause, because without that, it would not be safe. We could not encourage people to go back. So the message here is, yes, let's try to uh, invoke this clause elsewhere. But more importantly, countries of origin of the refugees and displaced need to follow the virtuous path of Côte d'Ivoire and put in place the conditions for them to go back. So a powerful point that if destination countries want people to go back to their home countries, they need to 
do everything they can to support economic development in those in those countries. Uh, perhaps we'll return to that theme. I want to ask you about a, a troubling uh, refugee issue, and that's one that involves uh, Great Britain and Britain's attempt to send uh, migrants, refugees, to Rwanda uh, as a way of getting them out of their borders and, and somewhere else. Last week, a plane was scheduled to take 130 uh, migrants to Rwanda. In the end, I don't believe any of the migrants actually flew there because of various legal challenges. I want to ask you whether this plan, as it was framed by the British government, in your eyes, violated international law. This plan has, in our opinion, and we've said it very openly in discussions with the British government, has flaws in different ways. It has some legal flaws for sure. Although, you know, it's not, um, it's not illegal for countries to share the responsibility of adjudicating refugee status. But it can only happen if the two countries in question have systems, both of them functioning systems, systems that are able to do that adjudication process. Now, ostensibly, the agreement between the UK and Rwanda means that Rwanda will have to do the work of the UK in, adjudication, in adjudicating refugee status. And Rwanda, which is a very good refugee hosting country, however, does not host refugees that require that individual determination. For that, Rwanda is not equipped or not yet equipped anyway. So there's, there's a legal impediment there or limitations. There's a practical one. Many of the people that we heard would be put on those hypothetical planes would be people from other parts of the world without any real incentive or possibility to integrate in Rwanda should they stay there. And finally, and this is what worries me most, this creates a huge precedent if it happens. It hasn't happened, but if it did happen, it would create a huge precedent. It would mean that a country with resources, as the United Kingdom, with uh, systems and institutions that are able to manage the, 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 the process of uh, granting asylum, that this country renounces some of these responsibilities and exports them to another country. And by the way, a country with less resources and less capacity to do so. So if this were to happen, what would I then be able to say to leaders, to governments in countries that are not receiving you know, refugees in their thousands, as the UK does, but in their millions? countries in Africa, countries in Asia, in Latin America. What if one of those governments said, we don't want to take them anymore. It's too complicated. Let's export them to another country. That would be the end of the practice of asylum as we know it, a practice that is so important to save millions of lives every year. Mr. High Commissioner, the Guardian newspaper in London wrote that you said that the uh, British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss had been wrong in saying that uh, critics had failed to propose alternative policies because, and here I'm, I'm quoting you, the UN had offered many, many suggestions instead of sending people to 
Rwanda and East Africa, uh, which, uh, as as we have discussed, in your view, violates international uh, uh, principles for refugees. I want to ask you what suggestions you made to Liz Truss, uh, and and whether those are suggestions that you're continuing to discuss with the British government. I want to say two things to this. First, that nobody should get me wrong. I'm the last person to say that these issues are simple for governments to deal with, including the United Kingdom. They're very complex uh, because there's many limitations to what governments can do if they want to do the right thing. But what we're telling these governments is that there's many improvements in the procedures that can be brought about to make them more effective, less cumbersome, less costly, more quick, more efficient. We've been talking a lot in Europe about uh, fast and or fair and fast procedures, procedures that are faster than the ones that are currently prevailing, that are very lengthy and, uh, and, and complex, but that maintain the fairness, maintain, um, uphold the rights of the asylum seekers. So this, you know, I, I, it would become very technical if we went into the details, but we have made proposals regarding that. We have asked governments to multiply what we call legal pathways to encourage or to help more refugees that are already in some countries, often fragile, to move to more stable countries through legal pathways, uh, secure, safe, orderly, and so forth. We have uh, reinforced what other colleagues in the UN are doing to try to um, convince governments to manage migration better, economic migration better. A lot of economic migrants that are nevertheless needed in rich countries use asylum as a channel to go there because the migration channels are um, not well managed, are insufficient, and uh, take a long time if they manage to, to go through them. So these are some examples. And then there's perhaps the most difficult of all, what to do with the many people that go through the systems in Europe, in uh, North America, in uh, Australia and other places, and uh, are not recognized as refugees, but there are impediments to their return, to their repatriation to their own countries. Rich countries, Receiving these people must establish more effective mechanisms for return. It's not simple, but we should all work on that. These are all or some of the suggestions that we have made to the government of the United Kingdom. And by the way, if I can add, this is not unique to the United Kingdom. We've had this a very similar discussion with Australia for many years. We've had it with the United States in respect of the southern border. So this is a, this is something that I believe would deserve some uh, strategic discussion between states concerned, but there are tools that can be applied to improve the situation without violating the principles. Before we leave the question of, uh, of Britain and the, the uh, flights uh, of uh, refugees to Rwanda, I want to just ask you whether, so far as you know, based on your conversations, there are plans for any additional uh, flights to Rwanda and the continued use of this mechanism. The first flight, as I mentioned, of 130 never happened. But, but what's your understanding? Will there be another flight? Uh, I do not know. These are 
matters that are dealt bilaterally between uh, the United Kingdom and Rwanda. I suppose, but this is my assumption, that uh, some of the legal uh, objections that the European Court on Human Rights has moved to the United Kingdom will have to be addressed if flights have to resume. So uh, let me ask you, Mr. High Commissioner, to turn to Ukraine, which is uh, an issue that has been dominating the headlines, but also dominating attention in terms of the refugee flow. It's estimated there are 7 million Ukrainian refugees. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, for so many of us, these scenes evoke uh, memories of World War II and the flow of refugees at, at that time. Curious what lessons you as a UN official, as a European, draw from the experiences of the past, some terrible events uh, of the previous century that are helpful now in trying to think about the refugee crisis in Ukraine and, and, and in related countries. This has been the, the most uh, severe refugee crisis in Europe um, since the Second World War. So it has, it's difficult to make comparisons with other crises. Uh, and in my own memory, I go back quite, quite a bit. It is uh, the first time in, in decades that in Europe, if ever since the war, that in Europe, this is a crisis generated by the invasion of one country, the invasion of one country by another country and the war that has ensued. So it has some specificities, but a few lessons that I can think of and I think are interesting to share. First of all, um, we tend to think of humanitarian refugee crisis as something that happens or that starts happening far away. It can happen closer or in the rich world. And therefore, I think it's important to um, appreciate that we can all be affected by this type of events. Second, Europe, or rather the European Union, did something very important. In I think it was the 3rd of March, so 10 days after the Russian invasion or even less, the European Union declared that all refugees from Ukraine would benefit from what is called, again, a technical name, um, temporary protection. This allows them to move freely in the Schengen space, to uh, have access to services, um, to live with their relatives, to receive some benefits and so forth. This was done very quickly, very unanimously in the European Union. And uh, I believe that this has allowed the European Union to absorb, even if perhaps temporarily to, to an extent, but to absorb millions of people in very few weeks. Uh, so the lesson there is, so how come we have heard for so long that Europe was full, that nobody could be taken in anymore, that we had to build, that walls had to be built, that people had to be pushed back um, uh, in, in the Mediterranean, um, when there is unity of intent, political will, um, a good discourse by politicians in respect of the refugees, it is possible to do it. Not simple, but possible. Which, of course, brings us 
to the last point, is there, are there different standards? And unfortunately, I think that there are different standards. I think that uh, we, we all appreciate and understand why this enormous attention was given to the crisis in Ukraine, and I don't think it should be less than that. I'm just saying that people who flee the bombs in Mariupol or uh, Severodonetsk are, are not different from people that flee uh, bombings in Ethiopia or severe violations of human rights in Myanmar or um, very difficult situations, security situations in action by armed groups in Sahel nearby here. I think the same compassion, the same attention, the same resources must be given to all. And if I understand it, you're saying the concern here is that these uh, white European refugees, to be blunt, from Ukraine may be getting better uh, treatment from European nations than other refugees. But if you say this, it looks like I'm saying they should get less good a treatment. I'm saying the opposite, but I think I'm saying the same thing, that others too should get at least the same attention and the same response. Unfortunately, we see quite the opposite. You know, my organization deals with refugees all over the world. And uh, in uh, many of our large operations in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, in Latin America, we're struggling financially this year, which was not the case to this extent in prior years. And the reason is that uh, many resources have been moving to help people fleeing or affected by the war in Ukraine. And this we must avoid at all costs, not least because uh, the environments in which these other crises are happening uh, are affected also in another way, as we all know, by the war in Ukraine, by food insecurity, by uh, inflation, by uh, energy challenges. So it's, um, uh, it's, it's a double impact that they're having. And uh, I am worried about this growing disparity in responses. We have just a minute left, uh, Mr. High Commissioner, and I want to use that time to ask you about another uh, very prominent uh, refugee uh, crisis now for decades, and that's Afghanistan. It's a year in August since the fall of the government in Kabul, the takeover by the Taliban. I want to ask you whether the, the refugee uh, crisis surrounding Afghanistan, the flow of refugees from Afghanistan, has been uh, less than you might have expected, and how you think the Taliban government is doing in dealing with these issues of, uh, of, of keeping people uh, at home by giving them work, not, not by force. How are they doing? To your first question, I would say yes. It is less than, let's say, we feared at one point. But I think that this is also due to the fact that in the last few months, and particularly through the last winter, humanitarian organizations were able to set up a very substantive response inside Afghanistan. Um, we have to say that with the end of the conflict between the Taliban and the previous government, 
the security situation in the country has improved. It's never been as relatively stable as this in decades. I worked myself in Afghanistan uh, 20 years ago in a relatively positive moment, but security was more challenging back then. So paradoxically, we have a, a, a situation of improved security that allows us to distribute food and other resources uh, to help with water, to help with all the fundamentals, all the life-saving issues. Now, your second question is more complex. How have the Taliban done? First of all, I think that one positive thing that happened last August was the decision, in particular by the United Nations and its organizations, to continue to engage with the Taliban. This is not recognition. This is engagement on humanitarian grounds. That has allowed us to have them as an interlocutor. I, and we've seen over the last few months some progress, like I said, in security terms, for example, but also some stagnation and some bad decisions, such as the one made recently not to allow girls in high schools. But by and large, there is dialogue, there is engagement, and this must continue. I know that there's been a lot of focus in the United States on, you know, let's get people out of Afghanistan, save women, save people at risk. And some of it has been done, but I think there should be equal focus on helping people that will stay in Afghanistan. And will stay in Afghanistan, there's no choice at the moment, under a Taliban government. So we must continue to engage, we must continue to talk to them about rights of minorities, about rights of women, and uh, uh, about access uh, to all people in need, and uh, we will continue to do that. It's going to be lengthy, it's going to require a lot of patience, but it's not possible to move slowly in a more positive direction. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, I want to thank the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, Filippo Grandi, for a fascinating discussion of this issue on World Refugee Day. Thank you for joining us from the Ivory Coast, and we hope we'll see you again on Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.